This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. My typical co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is attending the 10th anniversary of Harvard Law's Berkman Center, which is a think tank on Internet law. Uh, he's not with us today, but we're going to be talking about the Democratic race for the presidential nominee. It's been an exciting one, and as of this week, Senator Obama passed Senator Clinton in the number of superdelegates, and depending on which count you look at, Obama leads in the ever-changing race for superdelegates, approximately 284 superdelegates compared to Clinton's 273. That's according to CNN.com today. At the beginning of the year, Clinton led the superdelegate race by more than 100. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss the legal issues in in the superdelegate quandary, explore election law, the Michigan-Florida issue, and take a look ahead at what this fight to the finish means for the Democratic Party. We'll have two guests today. Starting off, we're going to have a discussion with Lanny Davis. He's a partner and member of the litigation group at the global law firm Oric in the Washington, D.C. office. Mr. Davis advises clients on a wide range of legal and governmental issues. From 1996 to 1998, Mr. Davis served as special counsel to President Clinton and was spokesperson for the president on matters concerning the campaign finance investigations and other legal issues. Mr. Davis has participated in national, state, and local politics for almost 30 years. He served three terms from 1980 to 1992 on the Democratic National Committee representing the state of Maryland. And during that period, he served on the DNC Executive Committee and is the chairman of the Eastern Region Caucus. And he's a CNN political analyst seen regularly on election coverage and a Hillary Clinton supporter. Welcome to the show, Lanny Davis. Thanks for having me. Our other guest is Daniel Takaji. He's an associate professor of law at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law and the associate director of election law at Moritz. His areas of expertise include the law of democracy, civil rights, freedom of speech, disability rights, federal courts, and civil procedure. Professor Tokaji is presently the author of a daily weblog called Equal Vote. His blog includes analysis and commentary on election reform and voting issues with special attention to the impact of changes in our election system on the voting rights of people of color, non-English speaking voters, and people with disabilities. Welcome to the show, Professor Takaji. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Annie, let's start off and give our listeners a bit of a recap about uh, where we are and how we got here. Well, from Senator Clinton's uh, perspective, um, if at the beginning of uh, the campaign I had uh, said to Senator Clinton, you're going to win every major Democratic Party state, industrial state, and swing state in the United States, and you're still going to be in a tough spot after having done so over Senator Obama, she would have said, well, there's something wrong with our system if I can win New York, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, and the key swing states of Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, all by significant margins. And then uh, the state of West Virginia, no Democrat has lost that state since 1916 and won the presidency, and she just won the state of West Virginia by 41%. So there's something, uh, I think, unusual in having all those 
victories, and yet she is now uh, looked upon as a long shot for the nomination. Now, that does go to the heart of the Democratic Party system that was established some time ago for a lot of reasons that ends up not rewarding someone who can win electoral votes to win the presidency, but rewarding somebody who, for example, wins in the state of Idaho and gets a bigger delegate margin where 4% of Democrats turn out for a caucus and 96% don't. And Senator Obama won a bigger margin in Idaho that hasn't gone Democrat in 75 years, but he got a bigger vote out of Idaho than Senator Clinton got out of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Massachusetts combined. Uh, that's our system, and we have the rules that we have to abide by, but there is something a little odd about that system. It is odd. It, it, it does kind of fly in the face of the one-person, one-vote theory. Um, yes, but there is no real one-person, one-vote theory in American politics because uh, we had the invention of the Electoral College that gave greater weight to uh, population than it uh, did to state-by-state voting, yet in the United States Senate, we have one voter in the Senate uh, and two votes for Wyoming and two votes for New York, even though the population centers are different. So our framers had to compromise one person, one vote. The Republican system is a winner-take-all system, which rewards those states that deliver the most votes to a presidential candidate, as the Electoral College does. So the Republican system is closer to what you need to get elected president than the Democratic system, which went to a proportional system. The reason for the anomaly that I mentioned is proportionality is what, in the state of uh, Ohio or Texas, for example, she won Texas and she came out losing the total number of delegates, even though she won in a state primary where millions of people voted. She lost in delegates because after the uh, polls closed, a handful of people, probably 1% of the electorate of Texas, gathered in various places for three hours and only people who are young or people who are wealthy or people who don't have to work for a living show up for these kinds of caucuses at the end of a long day. And she ended up losing uh, the state of Texas. So this is a, a pretty warped system that we Democrats, including yours truly, are responsible for. And I'm not sure that in this case, as much as I respect Senator Obama, uh, the state-by-state polls suggest that we're not producing the strongest nominee against Senator McCain if Senator Obama ends up with the nomination. So what's your political strategy advice to Senator Clinton at this point? Well, I know uh, she's following uh, her own pathway, so my advice to her is be yourself and remain the fighter that you are and uh, the good and gracious candidate that you are. So she'll go to the very end, and the last primary is Puerto Rico, and then the votes will be in, and then the superdelegates are going to have to make up their mind uh, whether or not they're going to vote for somebody who won by slightly more than 1% of all the delegates cast with the system that I mentioned, or the popular vote, including Florida and Michigan, will be about even. And they'll have to decide. And at that moment in time that they decide in the number, including Michigan and Florida, is, I believe, uh, 2,209 will be the winning number 
if you exclude Florida and Michigan, it's a lower number. Uh, whoever wins, wins. And if she doesn't win, she'll support uh, Senator Obama. So what about the Florida and Michigan issue? Is that, that something that uh, the rules can change as we go along? There's an equity argument. My fellow lawyers on uh, this program will understand the difference between law and equity. So the legal argument is that the rules were set down and they were violated. And Michigan and Florida violated the rules, knew they violated the rules, and hoped that uh, the rule sanction wouldn't apply to them, and they were wrong. The equity argument for their being seated is much tougher. Equity goes to conscience, to fairness. It doesn't go to strict application of the law. So here we have a situation where they were out of compliance and they agreed to bring themselves back into compliance by having a revote all over again. Senator Clinton wanted the original vote to count because two and a half million people turned out when they were told it didn't matter. Uh, almost a million seven in Florida, 700,000 in Michigan. But she said, okay, let's do a revote. Howard Dean, the national chairman, said if you do a revote, meaning absentee ballots or firehouse locations for people to revote, we can do it in June. And then Michigan and Florida will be back in compliance. To me, that was a win-win solution. And Senator Obama refused to allow a revote. That's a fact that very few people know, but it's a fact. Senator Obama declined the invitation from Senator Clinton. The money could have been raised privately. Senator Corzine from New Jersey and Senator Lautenberg offered to help raise $20 million. Both campaigns could have raised it from the Internet. Senator Obama refused. So I believe the equities change because of that fact. And therefore, it's perfectly fair for Senator Clinton to say, okay, there was a way to get these two states that we need for the general election back into compliance. And Senator Obama, for perfectly understandable reasons, because he didn't want to risk his lead and maybe losing in Florida and Michigan in a revote, declined to support the revote. In my judgment, the equities now shift in favor of seating Michigan and Florida and uh, seating according to the way they voted uh, back in January. Mathematically, then, that gives Clinton a better chance, isn't that right? Absolutely. Uh, she won in Florida. Very interesting that Florida was told this doesn't count because you violated the rules. 1,700,000 Democrats turned out after being told it didn't count. And it's the record turnout in all of Florida's history. Tells you a lot. So she won in Florida by 500,000 votes when they were told it doesn't count. So, yes, if she were to count Florida and count Michigan, then the popular vote difference between herself and Senator Obama disappears. She actually goes ahead by a little. That takes away his argument that he's won pledge delegates and the popular vote. And, of course, it's the superdelegates that have to decide, well, does that affect their judgment? Well, in the last couple of speeches that we've heard from President Clinton, she has given some very conciliatory signals saying that she's going to support any nominee. And then we have Senator Obama coming out with an endorsement from Senator uh, Edwards that looks everything like a vice president nomination ticket. What, what's the status now? First of all, I have to say that I appreciate your calling her President Clinton, but we're not there quite yet. I think you meant 
think Senator, Senator Clinton. Clinton. But I'm happy, right. to, I'm happy to hear her call President Clinton. Uh, Maybe it's a Freudian look, slip. <laughs> uh, look, I don't know who the ticket is going to be. Uh, I don't think John Edwards' endorsement affects any voters. I think it certainly affects uh, political insiders, and it certainly he's a man of, uh, of great uh, skill, and I respect him greatly. So, obviously, uh, we would have loved to have had his endorsement, but it doesn't affect voters. And if anybody doubts that statement, uh, remember before the Massachusetts primary, Ted Kennedy, John Kerry, and the governor of Massachusetts, and Caroline Kennedy, and Oprah all endorsed Barack Obama. And Barack Obama lost the state of Massachusetts by 15% to Senator Clinton. So endorsements, everyone really understands don't affect voter patterns very much a little bit around the margins but i certainly think in the momentum it uh, it helped uh senator obama greatly to have uh senator edwards's endorsement i happen to think it was a little tacky this is my hillary clinton bias coming out so i acknowledge that why not give her one day of a victory lap after defeating senator obama by 41 percent in the state of West Virginia. Why not give her one day to conduct some interviews and talk about uh, her having a good day? They literally stole that moment by dominating the news with the Edwards endorsement. Now, is that smart politics? I guess so. But was it necessary? Could they have allowed her that one day? I think they could have. But that being said, uh, we'll come down to after Puerto Rico and the Rules Committee decision as to whether Florida and Michigan are seated. And then Senator Clinton will either be our nominee or she'll be supporting Senator Obama. And I assume vice versa, Senator Obama would support her if she ends up being successful. Well, either way, do you ever see the possibility of an Obama-Clinton ticket, whether one's on one side or one's on the other? Do I see the possibility? Yes. Do I think it's likely? No. Uh, I think it's more likely that there would be a Clinton-Obama ticket uh, then that there would be a uh, Obama-Clinton ticket. If Obama wins, who do you see as his vice president nomination? Gosh, I don't know. He has a serious problem uh, among uh, white working-class voters. It is not a racial statement to say that because, and it's very unfair and unjust for Senator Clinton to be accused of playing a race issue by making that factual statement. It's not a racial statement, and I can prove it isn't, because I could have said the exact same sentence about John Kerry. He was an African-American. He lost the presidency because white working-class Democrats in Ohio and in West Virginia didn't vote for him, and he lost those two states. Uh, the last Democrat to have been able to win the White House without carrying the state of West Virginia was Woodrow Wilson in 1916. So this isn't about African-American versus white in West Virginia. This is about the Democratic Party through the 1980s losing white working class voters to Ronald Reagan. They were called Reagan Democrats. It's the reason why Barack Obama presently in the polls is losing Florida by 15 percent, running even in the bluest state of all in Massachusetts against Barack Obama, losing uh, Ohio by a significant margin losing, obviously, West Virginia and Kentucky, two border states that Bill Clinton carried in 92 and 96. Barack Obama has a serious problem. 
And he's got to address the problem, not fly over the states and ignore them. He's got to address it. He needs a vice presidential candidate who can help him address it. Hillary Clinton, obviously, more than anybody, is popular in those neighborhoods. But he has to find another Democrat uh, who can carry those neighborhoods. Well, Lanny, I know we're getting close to the time that you need to leave, so I'd like to ask one last question, and then after that, get your final thoughts and, and your contact information for our listeners to get a hold of you if they like. The question is, if given the the mess that's occurred with the superdelegate vote and, and the back and forth about the rules changes, do you see the Democratic National Committee overhauling the rules so it's more like a Republican system for the next election? If my mother were alive, I would answer that question the way she would. Uh, I will anyway, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, this system is broken. It's not producing, uh, whether it's Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, I'm not talking about the outcome here. It's not producing a rational outcome because the states that Democrats have to win are being dominated by states where Democrats have never won. So we have to do something about a system where Idaho, Utah, and uh, at least South Dakota and, and some other small Republican states out in the Midwest have greater power to nominate a Democrat than the big states that we need, uh, that we must win. So, yes, it's got to be overhauled, uh, something close to going back to a winner-take-all system. So California, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio have a proportionate power that is higher than Idaho and Utah. I don't have anything against Idaho and Utah. If you have any listeners out there, you have beautiful states, but you haven't voted Democratic in a long time, and we need to go to the states that elect our presidents and give them more of a proportionate uh, award of delegates. So that's probably the most important change that I predict will occur in the next couple of years. That seems to make sense. Well, let's get your final thoughts then and your contact information for our listeners. Well, my final thoughts uh, are that with all the disputes and debates and everything that's gone on, uh, if you try to find a significant issue on which Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama differ, you'd be hard-pressed to find one. So I have no doubt that this party will be united behind Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, whichever is the nominee. That's really my final thought. All this silliness about... What a divisive uh, primary this has been and how nasty it's been. It has not been at all divisive and nasty. Uh, supporters get divisive and nasty, but our two candidates agree on the major issues. We were divided in the 60s because we had people who were for the Vietnam War, anti-Vietnam War, and the party split right down the middle. We were divided in the 70s because we had a whole contingent of racist votes that ultimately uh, divided part of our party. We saw George Wallace running and, and, uh, other people who were very racial in their, in their motives. We do not have that in 2008. We have a united party on the great issues of our time. And we have two strong personalities and two strong, uh, sets of supporters, but we're going to be united as a party. Great. And how can our listeners reach you if they have any other questions or for some reason would need to hire a political expert? Uh, I will give you uh, the name of my assistant and the email address is M as in Mary Melendez, M-E-L-E-N-D-E-Z, uh, at ORIC, O-R-R-I-C-K dot com, M Melendez at ORIC dot com. My email address is easy enough to find as ldavis at org.com, but since I get buried in emails, 
if people uh, want me to respond, the best way is to do it through Ms. Melendez. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your insight and your participation in today's show. It's been an honor to have you on the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, I'm sorry I couldn't stay on, and Professor, I... Uh, wish the next time that we can be on, we can have a dialogue, and uh, please invite me back. We'll do that. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about the legal issues surrounding the Democratic race for candidacy with Professor Daniel Takaji. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, and I'd like to welcome back Daniel Tokaji. He's the Associate Professor of Law at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. Welcome, Professor Tokaji. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you've heard the political side of this discussion. Uh, let's talk about the election law. Uh, what are the rules that apply in this situation to uh, and any legal snags, that, uh, assuming that Clinton stays in the race to the convention? As she says, she will. Well, I mean, elections, especially primary elections, are something of an odd mix. You've got, on the one side, public law, state laws, federal laws that govern the election process, everything from voting machines to voter identification to provisional ballots, registration, challenges to voter eligibility, and so forth. And on the other side, you've got this private ordering, which is a product of um, the Democratic and Republican parties' rules, uh, which are set by the parties and are adjudicated by the parties and aren't really generally considered a matter for the courts to decide. So you've got a mix of, of public and private ordering here. And a lot of the disputes that are going on right now, for example, the disputes having to do with Florida and Michigan's delegates, which seems to be uh, the big 
uh, uh, quasi-legal dispute out there is between Obama and Clinton right now. These are um, these are um, sort of at the boundaries of the law, I guess we could say. You know, if it were a legal question, it's, it seems to me, as, as I think uh, Lanny Davis was admitting a few m- moments ago, it would be pretty clear, right? Florida and Michigan uh, violated the rules, which were very clear rules, um, and there would be a, a, an almost slam dunk case for not having those delegates that were selected at that at those primaries count. But you know, this is a political matter more so than a legal matter, and we've got three entities that are interested in it. We've got. Uh, on the one hand, the Clinton campaign. On the other hand, the Obama campaign. And on the third hand, we've got uh, the Democratic Party, which has its own interests, both in making sure that its rules are adhered to in future elections and in not alienating two key states, Florida and, and Michigan. It seems like everybody's forgetting the one thing that really does matter in this is, and that's the individual voter, the individual mm-hmm. Democratic voter. I mean, my question is, you know, we have notice as a, a, a kind of core element of our Constitution that people are, must be provided notice before undertaking any particular uh, step in the law. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, while the political pundits and the Democratic Party and certainly the candidates understood the Democratic rules before the election started, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a voter in the land that understood that this was going to occur uh, and how do you deal with the individual voter who thinks, well, wait a minute, I voted this way and the popular vote is this way, but wait, somebody gets to change my vote? Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say that voters uh, today in, in, in May of 2008 are much better educated than were voters in, say, January of 2008 about what exactly the rules are. Now, you know, I mean, I, I think this is particularly salient with respect to Florida and Michigan. On the one hand, the Clinton campaign, you've, you've just heard the arguments, you know, they, they make the argument that, well, these voters who came out to vote at this state's uh, primary shouldn't be disenfranchised. But on the other hand, if you were a voter who actually knew what the rules were and knew that uh, the, the Democratic Party's rules provided for um, primaries uh, requiring that primaries take place after a certain date, that Michigan and Florida had failed to comply with those rules, well, you might well say there's no point in my turning out because my vote's not going to count. And those voters who chose not to vote, at least I'm sure the Obama campaign would argue, are being disenfranchised uh, by virtue of their knowledge of the rules. So, um, I mean, I suppose, you know, at the end of the day, it's probably incumbent upon us as voters to understand at least in basic terms, the rules of our parties. I think we do that much better now than we did five months ago. Given this change, though, I mean, there was a spoof on Boston Legal about uh, the superdelegate wanting to change his vote and someone filing an injunction against him. Is something like that even possible? I think that is a spoof, uh, to be sure, that if, if a superdelegate decided to change, in fact, if a pledge delegate decided to um, to vote for a candidate other than the one to which he, he or she was, quote-unquote, pledged, there would be no legal recourse for it. That's that individual delegate's decision, and, and uh, I can't imagine that any court in the country uh, would or could order a delegate to vote a certain way. That's the stuff of TV melodrama, but not reality. I would agree with you on that one. Well, given the uh, 
the circumstances of superdelegates now, so that it's left to Clinton and Obama to go to the superdelegates and persuade them to vote one way or the other? Well, that's right, and it's up to the superdelegates to determine how they want to vote. I mean, I think, you know, as I as I suggested before, this is really a political question, not a legal question. There's no legally binding authority compelling them to vote a particular way. It's um, it's uh, it's up to each individual superdelegate to determine the criteria according to which he or she will cast his or her vote. I mean, it's certainly looking right now like Obama is the um, the all but certain nominee of the Democratic Party, and I suspect that we'll see um, a substantial majority of the as-yet-unpledged superdelegates go his way. But, but that's, that's a political question, not a legal one. We have somewhat of a parallel system with the Electoral College, and thankfully, yeah. I, I think the history has shown us that there, the Electoral College generally follows the uh, popular vote. But one of these days, it's possible that, that uh, the Electoral College voters could vote different than the popular vote. Isn't that right? Sure. It, it's almost happened. It almost happened in the last election. And um, uh, it, if memory serves, it did happen in the 2000 election. Uh, the, the result of the popular vote is not necessarily going to be the same as the result of the Electoral College. Um, uh, but that is a product of our Constitution. And, um, you know, as, as, as a practical matter, it doesn't respect the principle of one person, one vote, at least when it comes to voters across state lines. Smaller states have greater weight in the Electoral College system, and this is in part uh, a result of the, uh, the, the original Constitution's compromises between the slave states and the non-slave, the, free, the so-called free states, um, uh, where this, where this, this somewhat odd arrangement uh, was agreed to. Um, it's, it's something of a historical artifact. At the same time, it, it, it seems unlikely that the Constitution is going to be amended anytime soon because a lot of states benefit from this odd system that we have, including my own state of Ohio, which gets disproportionate attention by virtue of our status as a swing state. So you don't see any amendment to eliminate the Electoral College in the, in the near future? Yeah, I don't see any constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College in the near future as as laudable an idea as I think going to a popular vote system would be. There have been proposals out there to um, to, to do a sort of bypass that wouldn't require amending the Constitution, where there would be a, a, a sort of interstate compact. Various states would form an agreement to give their electoral votes to the national popular vote winner so long as a certain uh, number of states sufficient to equal a majority of, uh, of the Electoral College went along with the plan. And, and, and that, that proposal has some constitutional issues. It's not clear whether the Supreme Court would tolerate such a bypass of the Electoral College, but there are proposals floating out there for various forms of Electoral College reform. I would bet that there'd be an outrage and a change in the Electoral College if the Electoral College did not mirror the popular vote. What do you think about that? Well, it happened in, in 2000, right? And uh, I, I think there was an outrage on one side. Maybe if it had also happened in 2004 and Kerry had won, despite the fact that uh, President Bush had a majority of the popular vote, which which was 
very near happening, if, if you recall, four years ago. Maybe at that point, both, both sides' oxes would have been gored, so there would have been some political motivation to get rid of the electoral college system. But, but I, I honestly can't see it happening anytime soon because there are a lot of states that have a vested interest in the process uh, remain, remaining as it is. Well, there was a Bush versus Gore case that arose out of the earlier election. Do you think that there's a possibility for a uh, Obama versus Clinton similar case in this one based on the, the rules issues? No, I don't. Uh, I, I don't see the possibility of the dispute between Obama and Clinton getting resolved in the courts. Uh, the Democratic National Committee and its uh, various um, uh, subcomponent opponent bodies are, are the ones who are likely to be resolving the current dispute. And, you know, it's a matter of the, the, the big one out there on the table is how the Florida, Florida and Michigan delegates get assigned. There's a, supposed to be a hearing of the Rules and Bylaws Committee of the Democratic Party on May 31st. Um, you know, I suspect at this point what we're likely to see is, is some form of compromise emerging as to Florida and Michigan, whereas where some, um, but not all, of their delegates uh, end up being seated. Um, at this point, it doesn't look like it's likely to matter, given the delegate math, which has Obama pretty solidly in the lead. When in that circumstance, when Obama's in the lead, uh, Clinton's strategy, and I know that you, you said you didn't really want to talk about strategy, but it, it seems that yeah. Clinton's strategy has to focus on the popular vote. Well, I, I, I suppose that's right in terms of persuading superdelegates, although that doesn't seem to be an argument that she's uh, making much headway with. Um, you know, I mean, I think the real question, to, the real thing to watch as we look at Florida and Michigan is, uh, does Senator Clinton go to the mat on this? Um, you know, it's, it's clear that the rules were violated by these states. It seems clear that there ought to be some sanction for their violating the rules. Um, if we see the Clinton campaign um, uh, taking a, uh, an uncompromising, no uh, take-no-prisoners type of position on Florida and Michigan, insisting on the full seating of those delegations, despite the fact that they very clearly violated the rules, um, you know, I, I think that's a that's a sign that um, that um, we're looking at a uh, at a bloody convention coming up. The best solution, quite clearly, for the parties involved and for the Democratic Party is some sort of compromise on or before uh, May 31st, but uh, it's not entirely clear that that's going to happen. Well, we've reached the end of our program where it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts and then to get your contact information for our listeners. And I know before the show, you were mentioning that you couldn't wait to get home at night to watch the news and, and because you found this whole process so interesting. And I was wanting to find out what it is in particular that you found so interesting about this, uh, this whole campaign. Well, I mean, I think what is uh, interesting and exciting for those of us who care about elections and democracy is the fact that we've really had all 50 states and the various United States territories 
participating in this election. It's gone on for a long time. It's been exhausting, sometimes bitter and divisive. But uh, the upside of all this is that people are really, especially on the Democratic side, very engaged and excited about politics. We've got a whole new generation of people who are interested in Democratic politics, a lot of whom have never participated before. Um, I think this is a really interesting and exciting moment in American democracy. And um, I know it's been said many times before, but it's worth reminding ourselves that this is the, really the first time we uh, have had uh, either a woman or um, a racial minority with a serious chance of becoming our next president. This is a this is a landmark moment in our history in many ways, even though it's sometimes um, difficult to see that uh, beyond the the often um, often um, angry, agitated struggles and the sound bites that we hear on television every night coming from both camps. Right, and your contact information? Uh, you you can reach our election, or you can find our um, election law project, election law at Moritz, by going to Moritz Law. Dot .osu.edu. Dot My Equal Vote blog is there, as well as various other things. We'll be carefully tracking election law developments during the 2008 election season. Great. Thank you very much. That about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, you can check all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows on the Legal Talk Network. And a very special thanks to our two guests, Lanny Davis and Professor Daniel Takaji. Ohio State University from being with us today. We'll be back next week to discuss another great legal topic. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.